a series, actually ending a series today in the book of First Thessalonians before going to some other things uh, throughout the holiday uh, time frame, and then we'll start something new in the, in the new year. But we've been a book, in a series in the book of First Thessalonians for a uh, couple of months, a few months now, and we're going to finish it up today in chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. So if you want to turn there, uh, that'd be great. If you have a Bible or if the P Bible in front of you or that sermon insert in your folders is uh, great too, but a lot of this will be on screen uh, here as well. But it's actually a great time to be a part at a series, a part of a series. If it's your first Sunday here, it might seem like, man, I missed the whole thing. But actually, it's a great time usually because a lot of New Testament books in whatever genre, a lot of times sum- summarize what came before it with the last few verses. And so letters, especially in the New Testament, are, um, are like that. There's a, a, a summarizing prayer or benediction or statement of some kind at the end that's, uh, that summarizes what came before it. And so we'll be doing that today, looking at this idea of uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and your spirit be with all of you uh, from verses uh, 23 to 28 uh, in, in chapter 5. So if you're brand new to the Bible, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is one of the apostles in the New Testament, wrote half the New Testament, 13 to 27 books, and wrote one of, this is one of two letters he wrote to the church in Thessalonica after he planted the church and is now in a different city, Athens, writing back to them to encourage them, wrote about all kinds of things, about the gospel, about the church, about the future, future hope we have in Christ, the will of God, how to, through the gospel and the Spirit's help, how to kill sexual sin, all kinds of great stuff we've been looking at, uh, but today is this uh, benediction-like finish. So let's uh, finish it up, verses uh, 23 to 28 today in chapter 5. We're getting full to begin. We'll come back and look at a few things here. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Quick thing on verse 26, not going to talk too much about this, uh, in fact at all, more about this this morning. So the idea of greeting the brothers or other Christians with a holy kiss was a a cultural phenomenon, it was a very familial way to greet. And so uh, the big thing here to understand is that Paul is calling the church a family. When he says, greet, greet the church, other Christians who are not your physical family, treat them like family in how you greet them. So that's the biggest thing there. If you want to underline something, don't underline kiss so much as underline um, brothers or, or greet Christians. Treat them as though uh, we have the same father. And that's actually the embedded gospel or uh, you know, good news reality in calling other Christians a brother or a sister is that we have a father. Not an angry judge or a slave master or a boss as a God, but we have a father-like, grace-giving, saving God. That's implied here, right? So when we, when we greet each other as though we're spiritual family, what we're kind of also saying alongside of that, at least in the subtext of greeting people as brothers and sisters, is that we have a loving God who's approached us in a familial way, adopted us into his family, died for our sins, rose again, and, and through that again adopted us into his family so that we can dine with him as friends, as children, and uh, not uh, fear him as those who, are, um, those who are condemned. So we've covered a lot of ground here uh, these past few months in this book, uh, in a lot of ways moving, and if this is a new concept to you, I'd encourage you to, to um, see this in other books of the Bible as well, to observe this, um, in a lot of ways moving from, in a very New Testament letter, rhythmic way, from thinking hard about deeper theological things like Jesus Christ himself, his gospel, 
what really happened on the cross, the church community that's born out of that grace, how to kill sin with the Spirit's help, especially sexual sin, the will of God being our thankfulness and our joy and our prayerfulness, eschatology or future hope, all kinds of things like that, some of which I mentioned before as well. Moving from that, though, to a closing statement of blessing, benediction, and prayer, which is very summative, as I was, as I was saying. So from things that are hard to grasp, from things that are a little bit easier uh, to grasp. So there are ways then biblically to summarize what's most important. To basically say, at least understand this. At least at the end of the day, if you don't understand some of these more complex things theologically, at least understand this and have go with this kind of spiritual peace. And sometimes that's the way we preach or we teach or we talk about concepts with Christians on formal infor- in informal levels. We talk about the heavier, uh, more uh, complicated things, but then at the end of that we say, this is kind of basically what he's saying here. And this is what we at least need to leave uh, with type of gospel peace that we need to leave this type of teaching with. And so the Bible itself does this. We don't just do this when we teach the Bible. The Bible itself does this and how the letters are laid out, moving from the complex sometimes, in general anyway, to uh, the more summative and, and simple. So basically that's what he's doing today. Not to say these things aren't complicated too, because they are. We'll talk about some of them here in just a minute. So I have three things today. Uh, first, we'll start with this uh, idea of benediction, and this is the, the formal, the explicit benediction, the first two verses here in this passage, although the whole thing is kind of benediction-like. Uh, we'll move on to the latter verses in just a few minutes. But So first, in verses 23 and 24, a, a benediction is basically a, a blessing. It's a prayer. It's a way, to, it's a distinctly Christian thing, actually. It's something that we, we see more in the Bible and practice more at the church than we just do in any other part of life. But a benediction is essentially that. 23 and 24 again say now, so again, after all's been said, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So a couple things to note here, especially in verse, uh, well I guess in both verses, but I was going to say in verse 23, we'll start there. A couple things to note that he's already talked about. So again, this is summative. We've already been here. We've covered this ground, especially in chapter 4 where he talks about sanctification there as well. But you also see the same language used here uh, in the yellow here. And that is, God is the one who sanctifies us. God is the one who sanctifies us. That means to be made holy or transformed into the image of Jesus Christ himself. From our former way of living unto a new way of living that's a more sanctified or set apart or holy or just good manner. So God is the one who, as he says here, may God do this. May God himself sanctify you at the bottom. The promise, he will uh, surely do it. He will make us holy. He will create good works in us. It's a very important uh, Christian doctrine, a very important non-religious, distinctly Christian doctrine to understand that this idea that God is the source of our holiness. He's the source of our good works. He calls us into it and makes it possible with his spirit living inside us rather than tells us to tap into the goodness already inside us to do these things. Do you see the difference there? It's huge. That's what makes Christianity so distinct and unique. Christianity says the Spirit calls us into, salvation calls us into a place of being able to do good works. He actually does it in us. He sanctifies us. He surely allows these things to happen, rather than the Bible saying, tap into the inherent goodness that is already inside of you and live a certain way. Uh, and it, it never says that. It might look like it sometimes, but always behind the veil is this type of theology. 
May God himself, as you're working to do good, may he be the ultimate one working to do that good through you. Ephesians 2.10 picks up on this idea, different letter, but same author. He says, for we uh, Christians, the church, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so some of you might be aware in this context in Ephesians 2, uh, Paul's saying, you're saved by grace, not by works, so that no one may boast. And the same idea is present here as well. Everything we do, not just in our conversion and salvation, everything we do, everything in life as Christians, every good in thought, word, and deed that comes forth from us is a gift from God. That's the encouraging, uh, one aspect of the encouraging nature of, of the gospel, the good news, is that he really systemically saves us. He doesn't convert us and say, now go and have fun storming the castle, go try to live really good lives. He says, I'm going to actually live inside you. I'm going to spiritually marry you, and I'm, we're going to be one flesh, and every, everywhere you go, I'm going to go. Everything you do that's good, I'm actually the one that's allowing that good to happen. So it's actually a very mysterious, hard to understand how that actually works, but very freeing thing that's distinctly Christian. God prepares good works for us beforehand that we should just walk into them and, and, and do them so that no one may boast, to use that language again. We can't boast in anything we ever do as Christians. It's not just about our conversion, it's about our good works as well. We can never, ever, ever say if this is true, look what I've done, but rather look what God has done. Philippians 1, 6, also same author, different letter. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This sounds exactly like what he's saying here in, this, in today's passage of he will surely do it. He's faithful to not just save but to empower, to begin a good work in you by his spirit, but to complete that at the end as well. So again, the source of your forgiveness, God died in your place and mine. He saves you from your sins in that great act of of, of salvation 2,000 years ago, but he also sets up camp in your heart and mind in the church so that he's completing what we first, what he began early, earlier in, in our lives. And whether that's yesterday for some of you or it's 20 years ago or more, uh, what he began in saving us, he will complete uh, in our lives as well. Now, this doesn't mean that, to be clear, that we talked about a few weeks ago as well, that when we talk about these things, it doesn't mean that we're puppets or without choice in the matter, nor does it encourage Christian passivity. But it says, as you work, he works in you. As you do good, it's actually him doing that good. Because you and I are one spirit with Christ now. We're raised up, the Bible says, with him. And he lives in us, doing all the good that uh, we do as believers. Philippians 2 gets at this idea, a little more clarity of of language here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, speaking to Christians, for because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in you so that you might work out your salvation. You and I cannot work out our salvation apart from him. He alone does it. It's very, very good news. Augustine said in in the fourth century as well, one of the early church fathers, he said, Give me the grace to do what you command and command me to do what you will. Give me the grace to do what you command and command me to do your will. Will me to do it. Command me, Holy Spirit, to live in a way that I know I can't live. So it's, but it's by grace. And I, and I wanted to highlight this, one, because it fits, but two, 
the idea of grace. This is part of the gospel. He, he saves, he forgives, he washes, and he empowers. He dies on the cross for our sins. He, he releases us and washes us, and he raises from the dead. He, he gives us a new way of living, invites us into that experience, and lives with us in a resurrected way, and encourages us to do the same and helps us to do the same. And so Paul prays here, back in our passage today, Paul prays for God to cause them to do good works. May he sanctify you. Otherwise, this is a silly prayer. If, if at, at the core of the matter with sanctification, it's something that we do, that God watches us doing, this is a waste of ink. Why would you pray to God to do something if he's not the one ultimately doing it? Right? It's contradiction. Why would you thank him? Why would we pray to him if God's not the ultimate source behind every good deed we've ever done? This is not only a waste of ink, it's actually a contradiction uh, theologically. It's a waste of a benediction. It's also very important here to see that, uh, moving on a little bit <clears throat> with verse 23, that he calls God a God of peace here. So he could have just said that you know, God is the one who sanctifies you completely and, and so forth and just kind of gone on not labeling God a God of peace. But I think he does that here. One, because it's true, but two, because he knows, as is probably the case for many of us here, including myself, but knows in his first audience that there's going to be people who are hearing this and who are going to feel at odds with God because they don't feel very sanctified. They don't feel like they're doing a very good job at maybe, like we talked about last week, for example, helping the weak among the church or not responding to evil with kindness. They're doing a bad job at that. They might feel very, at very odds with God because of it, but if that's, if that's what you're thinking, if that's, if that's our initial approach to this, this passage and passages like it, he says, don't worry. God is a God of peace to you. You're at peace with him. Nothing you could ever do could take the, the love of God away from you. So the, the, the relationship you have with God now because Christ has died for your sins is peace. Peace. So you're falling flat on your face in, in terms of love and good works. You're still saved. He loves you. So get up and believe he's working in you to the end of, of love and good deeds and, and continual belief in the gospel. Peace, peace, peace. And that, that, doesn't, that doesn't go backwards. We can't have peace with God and, and like the war is over between us because of what Jesus did and the war begins again. It, that's, that's it. There's, there's, there's peace between us and God because of Jesus' shed blood dying in our place and our sin kind of being laid on him is, is, is atoned for. So. so he forgives us, he loves us, and his powers in us in, in the Holy Spirit. So, so be at peace. If, if you're feeling that on any level, or you will in two weeks or a couple of years, I mean, at some point you will, uh, go back to that God of peace idea and, and, and think, and remember, it's the God of peace that sanctifies us. So wherever you are with that process, you have peace with God uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this benediction essentially says, may, may God help you to believe in Jesus and to be transformed by his spirit. May the gospel shape your mind, your heart, and your actions. May you move from who I am in Christ to what I should do in him and his spirit, not the other way around. May your faith be genuine and actual belief in and trust in the gospel. It's not just intellectual assent, but full-blown buy-in in mind, soul, and body, living as though we're actually loved, forgiven, and empowered. That's what he wants for the church. He knows they're forgetful. 
At the end of the day, he just wants that. In light of everything that's just been said in this letter, five chapters worth of, of deep theology, he says, at the end of the day, I want full buy-in. May, may God help you to this end. Full buy-in in mind, soul, and body to the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that and living as we're loved, forgiven, and empowered by the Spirit to a life of sanctification, love, and good deeds. All right, so that's the first thing, the benediction. The, the second thing here we're going to look at is a little further down in verse 27, which I'll read again. It says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Very interesting thing, right? I don't know if you guys have seen this before in the Bible. It only comes up twice, actually, in all of Paul's letters, where he puts a church under oath uh, to read a letter. The other one's Colossians. There's a tone of seriousness to this, right? And putting people under oath before the Lord or Jesus Christ uh, to hear something that he has uh, written. And we don't know exactly uh, why, contextually, there, this is all conjecture. There, there might have been very specific reasons um, why he's instructing this, that in other words, he may have known about certain people in the church who especially needed the, the instruction in the letter, and he want to make sure that they heard it, so he says, make sure you read it to all, and you must read it to all, but that's all conjecture. I think what's more clear, the broader truth here is that, it, that especially applies to us outside the immediate historical context of what's going on in Thessalonica, is that it's really, really, really important to read the Bible extremely important to hear from God through it and to have it taught over us, to be the, the, the pipeline, uh, the voice piece ourselves for other people. But it, for, for this case, or to understand it from this vantage point, uh, to hear from God uh, through the scriptures. So important that Paul says, you must read this to the church. He's actually saying with oath language, he's saying, swear to me and the Lord that you will read this letter to every single person in the Thessalonian church taking it very seriously, right? This is not like, well, if they read it, it's kind of, it's all right, it'll help them a little bit, this is good, but they don't have to read it, you know? Their, their spiritual life's not really that dependent on it. It's that, that doesn't smack of that, right? The smacks of they have to hear it. Their spirit, I think the implications here are threefold. There could be more. First is, their spiritual life depends on it. If they don't hear this letter, if they don't hear from God through it, they will be in a worse place, spiritually speaking. Otherwise, why the strong language? Why putting them under oath? Why not just say, you know, it's probably be a pretty good thing if most people heard this. Why the oath? Not just before him, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Second layer uh, implication is some of them won't want to hear this. Some, some Christians will say, you know, I've heard it before. I've got the gospel. I'm graduating to something else. And they won't value the words. And so for their sake and, and yours, he's writing to the leaders of the church here, for their sake and yours, I'm putting you under oath to read this letter. I'm, like a good father, he's kind of, you know, force spoon feeding in a sense. <laughs> he's saying, you don't like this, but it's good for you, and I'm going to make sure you feed on it, because your, your nourishment depends on it. And the third layer is kind of related, the third implication is that they're forgetful. They're forgetful like, like us. He knows this. Uh, it's all over Paul's letters. Some of you guys are aware of this. It's, it drips, it just kind of hangs over all of Paul's words and all of his letters in different, various ways. That Christians, ultimately, are called to remembrance. Not to new, faddish, sexy theology, but to remembrance of old things they already know. Over and over again, that drum is beat. Boom, 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 boom. Over and over again. Paul says, I know you already know this, 
but it's no trouble for me to write to you again. It's a safeguard for you in Philippians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says the same thing. What you already received and stand in, I now proclaim to you again. And, and, and here again, it's implied in the white space is that people are forgetful, so I put you under oath to read this to Christians who already know it. And for this church, remember, this is a very young but very healthy church. So this is not a church that, that maybe in comparison to churches like Galatians or uh, Corinthians, the church in Corinth and Galatia, that were having trouble theologically and, and otherwise. This is a church that's, and that maybe needed all the more to hear these things. This is a church that actually is doing very, very well in the areas of belief and love. And Paul says, I'm putting you under oath to read it to them. They need to hear it. So an air of seriousness, right? And uh, somberness, but also joy. And also um, uh, admonishment here as like a good, he's a pastor to them still. He's writing back to make sure they're people of the word. And, and the church always, always will be this. The true healthy church will always be word-centered. You know, contrary to what a lot of you may have heard before or maybe used to live this way or currently do, treating the Bible maybe in a less important manner, uh, you know, it's common today to hear, uh, I, I hear from God in other ways. You know, I, I've, heard this, I've heard this before, so I'm going to look elsewhere. Uh, whether people say that or live that way, uh, might be more the latter. It's very, very common, very easy to go there. I feel it in my heart all the time. Uh, so it's just, this is a common, common, uh, I think universally experienced thing on whatever level as Christians. But, but again, note what he puts them in oath to do, to hear. He doesn't say, I put you under oath to go stare at a mountain range and hear from God through nature. Right? I mean, that's not here. What does he put them under oath to do? Hear Scripture. Their lives depend on it. This is the most clear we get about Jesus. There's no more clear, clear revelation of God in the world than Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised. That's how we know what He's like. That's what we know, what, how we know what He wants. That's what we know what we're like and how we're loved. Sinners, but loved. And we, we know every, everything we need to know, we know through the pinnacle, the climax of God's story in, in the Bible, how he speaks into the world. And Actually, some of you are aware, Jesus calls himself, or the Bible calls him, the word of God. So the very act of Jesus coming into the world is a God-speaking type thing. He speaks all over the place in the Old Testament, but Christ is his final word to, to, uh, to the world. In fact, in, uh, you see this in the gospel accounts all over. Actually, all four, I think, have something like this. But in Luke 9, it says, and a voice, the voice of God, this is happening at the transfiguration, if you know what that is, but uh, the voice came out of the cloud saying about Jesus, his son, to the disciples, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen. Not this is my son, do what he's doing, but listen to him. He has something to say to you about deliverance. He has something to say to you about grace. He has something to say to you about himself being the way back to God. Not pointing and saying, this is the way you get to him over here, like a guru, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. Listen to him because he has the words of eternal life. It's actually... Uh, uh, in the, in the uh, Quran, the Muslim holy book, Christians are called people of the book, people of the Bible. That's what we're called in the Quran. And how much more do the scriptures teach this, right? How much more should we live that way? We are people of the book. If we're not, what are we? 
We are people who claim to have heard from God. He spoke to us. He called us from the tombs. And we live as he, like God in the very beginning spoke and things that weren't were. So let there be light, let there be land, let there be fish, let there be animals, let there be sky, an expanse in, in the heavens. Let there be something called, he- as he speaks, things that weren't were. In the same way he saves you and me. There's no way to get to God unless he speaks and creates. And, and he does that through the word, which is Christ. God, through Christ, says, believe in me and you will be saved. Look to my son who's dying as a sacrifice of atonement in your place and you will be saved. By grace you've been saved, not by your works. So he says this and many things like this in, in, many, in many and various ways through his son. And we as people of the book or the Bible, the word, love hearing it. And we should. Even if we don't love it, we discipline ourselves to say, I'm still going to hear it. Because I know that Jesus Christ alone, as Peter says in the Gospels, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. So it, put yourself, if it helps to think about it this way, this is not a, you know, a literal thing here. We don't like, you know, have you know, printouts for you to sign before you leave here or anything. But, but, uh, but put, your, put yourself under oath to read the Bible, figuratively speaking. And what I mean by that is take it very seriously. Uh, and this is hard to do by yourself sometimes, so you're not alone. In community, uh, talk about the Bible a lot and talk to people about how they read it, about where they start, about what they're learning. So have it spoken over you, not just like I'm doing now, but just throughout the week, whether it's one person or your group. It's, it's critical. It, your spiritual and my spiritual nourishment depend on it. And if that's foreign to you, please talk to us. You're not alone. And a lot of you aren't Christians yet or you're barely Christians and the Bible, reading the Bible is very difficult to know where to start. Please talk to us or someone you know here who's further along than you are in the Christian life. Ask them, uh, what are they reading? Uh, what passages in the New Testament really summarize the gospel well? What gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is maybe the, the best of the four to start in? Or how does the Old Testament hang, how, did, how does it relate to the New Testament? We have a class on that we're doing right now, but um, you know, we'd love to talk to you more about that too. How is it one story? Not a bunch of random precepts listed out. Um, randomly in the scriptures and how is Christ that climax. Some of the best questions you can ever ask about anything in your life. So please don't let your pride get in the way of just saying, I don't know how to read this book. Even as a Christian, I just don't know how to approach this. We, it's not a bad question at all. We, it doesn't matter how far along you are in the faith. It's, there are days where it seems very daunting. So uh, please, uh, please talk to us. But have that oath-like perspective that this is, this is my existence as a Christian God being a God who speaks, you know, it, it would go against the very nature of God himself, being a God who speaks all the times and saves through those words, to not be people of the word uh, continually over and over and over again. All right, so second thing, the importance of Scripture. Third thing is, and this, these, are, these are my words here, but um, I think basically this is what's going on, is a wish, a hope for, but a wish of grace-centeredness upon the church. Verse 28 says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I alluded to this earlier, I think, maybe it's first service, but um, if you weren't aware, all of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament and some other ones, we call them those general epistles, so letters that weren't written by Paul, are, uh, are ended with this statement or something like it. 
Something with the word grace in it and Jesus Christ and, and a wish of grace. May, at the very least, after all has been said, may the grace of God be with you. That's the last thing it's said. The, the book of Romans has it, I think, like, you know, eight verses prior to the, last, to the last one, so it's a little bit of a break in the pattern, but it's still there. All of his letters do it. Actually, the last words in the whole Bible, in the book of Revelation, are those words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, uh, be with you in the church. So uh, it's, it is more than summative of Paul's letters, it's summative of the whole of the scriptures. So we have to ask, well, why is this the case? I think it begs the question, like why? Is, is this just a customary closing of letters during the day that you know, Paul just kind of backed into, like we might just say bye or something? Customary closing? Not really. There's much more here on a couple of levels. And one I've already kind of been talking about, so I won't spend too much time on it, um, though it will flow into the latter. There's a divine and human side, essentially, to this. On the divine side, uh, God's side, grace is God's story. And this is God's book. Like, he's writing this through people, but he writes it. And so uh, he has the, the freedom, the authority to end it how he wants. He has the final word. And for God, grace is always the final word. There's never anything to add to other than grace. And that's very freeing. There's, there's never a point where God starts with grace, but then maybe ends with works. Starts themselves and ends with you and me. Starts with his righteousness given to you as a gift, but then says, oh, but now you've got to tap into your inner righteousness to kind of complete the puzzle. Never. Grace is the final word for God. And grace is undeserved merit towards lost sinners. Kindness when it's not deserved. Forgiveness when it's not expected. So it's summative of everything in this letter, but everything in the Bible as well, whether it's a clear explication of what really happened on the cross or even an imperative or a command to be patient or to love the church. Paul knows that if they don't get grace, they won't be able to worship. They won't be thankful. They won't be prayerful. They won't be joyful. And they won't love because they're not compelled by love and they're too dead to love through a a, a law-filled command. So if they get grace, they'll, they'll get to the ends of what God really wants or Paul really wants for his churches, and that is worship, joy, happiness, contentment, and also robust life of good works. Works don't come from just saying, go and try harder. Works come from, I'm saved unto it. I'm loved no matter how I do over here. And so Paul knows if they just get grace, then they will be able to do everything in in the letter. So it's, it's God's ultimate storyline that we're saved by his grace, not by, not by our works. That's the divine side. On the human side, though, which is similar, what I mean by that is looking more at Paul's story so that the Apostle Paul, like I said before, wrote this letter, 12 others, in the New Testament. Paul is, I think, writing this not just inspired by the Spirit, but also, I think, the Spirit using how he's been impressed by grace. Uh, to wish that upon others as well. Paul is a, um, a poster child for grace. <laughs> like everyone else in the room, uh, myself included, uh, who's saved, we are poster children for, for grace. Grace says, I'm nothing, but God's everything. And for some reason, he looked upon me kindly, not based on anything I've ever done, but just because he loved me and chose me in that love. Grace says, and I think about this all the time for myself, grace says, I'm an unlikely recipient of grace. Or I'm an unlikely recipient of salvation. I'm the unlikely one. 
That's what grace says. And Paul knows this. He, he's this as well, which we'll read here in a second. So it's based on God, it being salvation, not on us. Romans 9.16, Paul writes this in a different letter. He says, so then, it, salvation, depends not on human will, not on our choice, ultimately, or exertion, or our work, but on God who has mercy. It, salvation, depends, it hangs on, not on us, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's the gospel, the offensive but beautiful nature of the gospel. If your gospel is not offensive, something's wrong. The Bible calls the gospel a tripping block, like a stumbling block, like a root growing up out of the ground in one of our trails down by the Mississippi that people run, don't see, and they trip over. As we're running our race of good works, we trip over the fact that it's not our works that save us, no matter how good we are. It's offensive, but it's also very freeing. If you, if you feel that, you're understanding the gospel. If it's just something that's kind of, you know, rosy glassed, rosy, rosy, glass, rosy cheeked, kind of like, this is, this is all, man, I'm such a great person. Thank God, thank you, God, for telling me this. I, I forgot how good I am. Something's wrong. Acts 9, 1 to 6 and verse 18 talks about Paul's story. Uh, he, was no, he was formerly called Saul. He was renamed Paul later. This is the narrative of that conversion event. Uh, Paul was murdering Christians in the name of misplaced zeal for God. He, uh, in the, the Jews in the first century thought Christianity was a blasphemous religious sect, uh, committing a capital crime of blasphemy. And so, and so Paul felt like he had this pass to go and murder Christians or imprison them, tear apart families. Paul's on his way to do more of that when Jesus appears to him and saves him. Here's the story. But Saul, before he was renamed Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And later, he was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is Paul's conversion story. Notice the first line. While he was breathing threats, and murder. In other words, while he was on his way to commit unspeakable acts of evil, Jesus appeared to him, knocked him on his back, and saved him. It does not say, as Paul was ardently seeking the scriptures, doing all kinds of good deeds, praying, seeking truly for God, Jesus appeared to him and just sat down nicely with him and said, I'm doing such a good job, look at me. You know, or something, you know? He knocked him on his back as he was going to murder his people, his children, his church, he knocks him on his back in love, he's very gentle with him actually, and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he's saved. He, he sees in that moment that everything the church was proclaiming was actually true and he was wrong. And so he shifts in that moment, never going, never going back. Romans 3 says, in light of this, Paul again writes this, a different book, but Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God, no, not 
one. There's no exception. If that's the case, God has to be the seeker, right? If God loves us and wants to save us and no one seeks for him, God has to do the seeking like he does. God goes out and seeks for us and finds us when we are not seeking for him. Grace, not works, not performance, not being a good lover of people, not being pleasing or favorable to God. God's not hiding that you might find him. You are hiding from him like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. They sinned, they hid from God in the garden, God came looking for them. He's never stopped since. He's looking for you. Doesn't that knock you on your back in a good way? You say, unbelievable. Why? Undeserving recipient of grace. Unlikely, Paul is, right? Unlikely recipient of grace. But God goes after him. His blood's strong enough to wash him of his sins. And he appears and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up. I'll show you what you must do because now I am your Lord. I've bought you back with my blood from the life of murder. I've bought you back from your hate. I've bought you back from your misguidedness. I am showing you what's true when you weren't even looking for it. I love you. It's in the subtext of this here. We, we know this. He's loved. He's chosen. He's found. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, essentially like this, while we were sprinting towards hell, he interrupted us with his love and grace. This is all of our story as well. You can do two things here. You can say, well, that was Paul's story, but not mine. You have a hard time defending that from the scriptures, honestly, and we could talk about that a time today. A really hard time defending that view, but you could believe that if you wanted to. Or you could say, this is typical of everyone who's ever saved. This is typical of you and me. Not literally, that we all have literally Damascus that we're running to, but we all are on a sprint towards hell. Not seeking for him, Romans 3 says, but God is seeking for us. And he's revealing gospel salvific truth to us. Through a missionary, through a dream, right through the scriptures directly, he's approaching us. He's finding us and saving us. So that we, again, can undergird the idea that we're saved truly by grace, not by our works. Not by anything we do. Just like Paul isn't saved here by sprinting towards God, he is sprinting away from him like we all are. So going back to Paul, then, in our letter today, and asking the question, why does he close his letters like this? One, because it's good and true and right theologically, but two, for him, relationally, and and just experientially, it's everything. If, If that Acts 9 passage is your experience, if you really believe that, you're going to want that for everybody. You're going to wish it on everybody. And you're going to pray ardently that, God, please give us souls. Save people here because you know that the only way a person is saved is if God shows up and does an Acts 9 kind of work. That's the only way people are going to be saved. We're too dead to find him ourselves. So if we really believe that, we're going to, all of a sudden we're going to start to pray more right? Because God has to show up and do it. We're actually going to start to look like what the Bible wants us to look like and that we'll pray more. If we don't think that, we're not going to pray as much because we think there's a sliver of possibility that people get in on their own works, on their intellect, on their seeking of God. So if that's the case, we don't have to pray as much because some people will kind of sneak in no matter if I pray or not. We fall on our knees, and I, I pray this every Sunday in regards to our gatherings, but generally for our culture here, God, give us souls. God, give us souls. God, give us souls. 
because you know, if we don't have that piece of the Spirit making what we're saying matter, what, what have we? You know, we, could, we could have the most articulate sermon or evangelistic appeal on the planet for all of history. If God's not making that matter, if he's not also simultaneously through your words showing up, interrupting our, our sprint to hell and saying, I love these people, this person, I'm, I'm using the, my missionary, my church to bring them to me. I'm going to make it matter and make it make sense and make it beautiful, offensive, but not enough to keep them away from me. If God's not doing that, we have, we have, uh, we have no hope. And again, on the flip side, if we think that we've found God on our own, the phrase, may the grace of Jesus Christ be with all, won't be as much of a prayer for us. It might be a little bit, but it won't be as much of a prayer because we might think in our eyes anyway that it's not up to God alone to save people. So we won't be as compelled by that idea. But for Paul... He was wrecked by grace. And at the end of the day, he's just saying, I want what happened to me to happen to other people. I want them to believe in that kind of God who is a relentless pursuer, who is a lover. And in his love, he chooses. You can't separate choice and love. It's impossible. Love makes a choice to commit and to marry and to love. So that's what God is like. He came as we were running our hellbound race. He interrupted it. And Paul's saying, oh, that this kind of grace would remain beautiful to the church forever. And that's how it ends. That's ultimate. It, it, he, the letter actually begins this way, too. If you remember the, in chapter 1, like he begins a lot of his letters, he, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts that way. It's the bookend. First thing he says Last thing he says, it's the bookends of the letter, the bookends of Christianity, the bookends of the gospel, the bookends of the entire storyline, and it should be the bookends of your and my faith. At the end of the day, we are people who have been, for who knows, God knows why, loved. Loved. So God came into the world so that he could be just, just and also merciful. So he died on a cross bearing our sins, that justice might be done, but merciful uh, towards people he loves as well, like a loving father is um, to his children. So this is how it, it, it ends and also how it begins. Not with a call for morality to be with you, brothers and sisters, or not with a call that at the end of the day, when all has been said, that ministry to the poor be with you church. That's a good thing. It should be a piece to a Christian's outlook and ministry among the church, the poor among us and, and, and beyond, but that's not how this ends because it's not central to the faith. It doesn't begin that way. It doesn't end that way. The center is you are poor in your sins and I am. And God is the ultimate generous giver and he's given his body as the riches of his grace to make us rich in spirit before him. Second Corinthians 8. Rich, not with physical money, but rich with eternal life and the love of God. That's the center. And that's what God wants you to know and to remember. Know for the first time today or to remember uh, for the millionth time. And that's what Advent's all about, Christmas time. The Bible says a Savior is born, not a teacher. The angels don't pronounce to uh, Mary first and then the shepherds um, on that night he was born that good news, a rabbi is here. You know, go sit at his feet and just kind of listen, uh, learn a few things on how to have your best life now. 
you know, because you're a good person, but you need to have that 5% shift towards being a righteous individual that I know is inside of you if you, you're a winner. You know, that's not, that's, that's about as far away from the gospel as, as you can get. Um, we celebrate at Christmas one who was born as one of us, as Emily prayed earlier, in the, the lowest, mangiest of circumstances, in a no-name town, in a, main, in a feeding trough for animals. That, that's how God was born into the world, to show us that he was going to bypass comfort all the way to the cross for you and me. That, that's why he was born in such circumstances. He, as the king of the universe, associates with the lowly. And the angels say, good news, someone's born who's going to save you from your sins. That's the center of Christianity. Uh, so we're called to believe and repent. Uh, believe, 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 rest, rest, rest. God is up to something in the world, and we stand in awe. And we look at that star above the, main, above the, the stable, like the, the magi, the wise men, and we, we see that God's up to something. The star just representing newness and life and kingship and God himself being up to something. God hung the star. The magi didn't. They just saw it. And so we just see it as well. That's the good news of Christmas time and any time of, of the year. Is God has arrived into the world because we could not arrive into heaven. He had to come to us to save us from our sins on a cross, and he had to come to Paul in Acts 9 to save him from his race to hell because there's no way in a billion years Paul was going to turn around on his own, just like you and me. He interrupts beautifully, interrupts our religiousness, our wickedness, our selfishness, our blindness. He interrupts the fact that we're on our back dead. <laughs> it's a good thing to interrupt. He interrupts the fact that we're in a tomb, unable to do anything before him by raising us from the dead. Um, that, and that's you know, just good news. So anyway, we pray for us here and we'll close. God, thank you so much for your grace today and the gospel of Christ. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for reminding us that grace is the bookend to the faith. Grace is not something that is secondary or tertiary or uh, supplemental, but rather uh, something that is uh, completely... Uh, just through and through the climax of the biblical storyline. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but praise be to God, a new righteousness from heaven has come down the form of a person to die in our place on a cross. As we celebrate that now through communion and song, God, uh, save more among us, uh, re-save, refreshingly save those who are already saved, make us more happy and thankful and joyful in the fact that nothing we could ever do uh, could turn your head our way nor turn it away from us. Uh, what you've chosen to love, uh, you have chosen to love. Uh, so thank you that uh, you are such a pursuer. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.